This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. I'm Nancy Postero. I'm the chair of the Academic Senate here and a professor of anthropology. The Senate represents the faculty in our shared governance with the administration. And this event is, a wonderful co- uh, is the result of a wonderful collaboration between the Academic Senate and its Campus Climate Change Committee. You'll meet its chair, Kathy Gear, shortly. And the UCSD Library, uh, uh, and particularly the librarian, Eric Mitchell, and his amazing staff who brought all this together. Thanks to uh, Jen Cormier, Nikki Colopelo, and Taylor Haglin from the library, and all the staff that brought all this together. Just yesterday, it didn't look anything like this. So all the work that they did to bring it together, we really appreciate. We're also very thankful for the support and generosity of tonight's sponsors, whose names were seen rotating on the screens as you came in. Stan's compelling book, The Ministry for the Future, inspired this evening's conversation between four students we are calling our Ministers for the Future of UCSD. They're sitting right over here, and they'll be up on stage in just a minute, in a few minutes. Uh, and so this is going to be a conversation between them, the author, and univers- university librarian Eric Mitchell. So now to open our program, I'm very happy to welcome to the stage Chancellor Pradeep Kosla. Chancellor? Thank you, Nancy. Uh, good evening, and welcome, everybody. So, you know, this evening we're going to talk about some very difficult issues and answer some very difficult questions. And before I got here, I also had a difficult question to answer, which was to read the 20-page talk they wrote for me <laughs> or the four-page that I wrote from this 20-page talk. So I don't know what the mapping is of information. You, 20 pages? Four. Four? Okay, all right. I'll start with four pages. Okay, so... Let me start by saying this evening promises, I was going to actually ad lib, but uh, this is an important evening, and I just want to make sure that I capture a whole lot of good things that are happening on campus, because most of, very often we forget what this campus is doing in terms of climate change and mitigation strategies, and I can tell you we're doing a lot. That's why these 20 pages. Okay. So this evening promises to provide a very interesting and a compelling conversation, as you all know. And thank you to UC San Diego Library. Eric, thank you very much, sir, uh, for helping us uh, make this happen. Uh, I personally have always believed that higher education has a very important role to play in all sorts of changes in society. Uh, you can talk about racism, climate change. Uh, you can talk about voting issues. Any issue that you talk about, I think higher education is the tip of the spear from where changes pretty much emerge, and especially from our young students, because they come charged with energy, and so today is no different. You have four ministers. I'm going to t- talk about them in a second, but just keep that in mind. So today is no different, and today we are also bringing together, in addition to these students, a very esteemed alum who is a very esteemed author, Dr. Kim Stanley Robinson, but as soon as he comes to campus, he looks like a student. So I was telling Stan that when you go home, regardless of your age, if your parents are around, you always behave like a kid. So he is, for today, a student. Okay, 
so higher education, like I said, has a really important role to play. And I've always believed, especially in the context of sustainability research, discovery, and actionable solutions to deal with climate change. And my personal interest in this area starts in 2010 when I was dean at my previous uh, dean of engineering. And there I was charged to develop a whole energy institute strategy. And being a computer scientist, uh, an AI person, I did not know much about energy. But I did start my career doing power systems. So I had some idea. So I started learning about energy. And what I learned took me six months. And I realized it was a very complex issue. It was one of the few issues that intertwines science, technology, policy, and politics, all in a very seamless manner, and you cannot disentangle one from the other, and very soon we forget what is science and what is technology and what is politics, and then we get involved. And that's where we are. So 2010, I thought we were in trouble. 22, I think we are still in trouble, maybe a little bit more trouble now. Okay. So... So the end result was creating this Energy Futures Institute in 2012, but right at that point, UC San Diego comes along, and I look at this place, and I said, if there's one place in this country that can really make a change, an impact in climate change and impacts of climate change, it is UC San Diego. Because this, after all, is and was the home of the Keeling Curve. This is the home of the Scripps Institutional Oceanography. This is the home of a lot of very good climate science that's done in chemistry and engineering. I can go down the list. But this is the place. This is the place that lets people come together from different disciplines without regard to which department you're in and not let the deans worry about where the indirect costs are going. So this is a place that really puts people together. So I said, you know what? This is perfect. So here I come along. And I realized what a great institution this is. And I realized that we have been doing over the course, and today when I'm talking, when I'm here to introduce, uh, sorry, talk about Stan a little bit, I realized that we've been doing a lot for climate change on this campus. So give me an example. In 2020, we were ranked fourth most sustainable university. I know it sounds like a surprise to you. I'm not making this up. Okay, you can fact check while I'm talking. Okay, please do that, okay? In the United States, and the 70th in the world amongst 912 universities in 84 countries by the 2020 UI Green Metric World University Rankings that measure efforts to combat climate change and reduce carbon footprints. So we are actually making an impact. Having said that, we cannot rest on our laurels. We need to do more, and we will do more. All right, 2020, we decreased our total greenhouse gas by over 25% compared to 2019. So making significant progress. And this amounts to something like 16,000 passenger vehicles being driven for one year. As in, imagine all of us were not driving, 16,000 people were not driving vehicles for one year. So that's the impact. We are also implementing a very comprehensive strategy, and we have spent more than $100 million in climate-based projects. I can go down the list. The point I'm trying to make is we should all be proud of what we are doing, but we should not rest because of what we are doing. We need to do a lot more. We have one of the world's largest and the most advanced microgrids. In fact, the leader of that area is, is in our campus right now. We are building a new multi-purpose hub for EV charging. We just added about uh, 320 new ports to this. So we are converting our whole electric our whole vehicles, all the, the whole fleet into electric vehicles. Not only that, my hope, my dream, my desire is by 2030, we convert our campus to all electric. So that's where we should be headed, right? So thank you. Not quite. In 2029, you can applaud. But today, today we should pray that we can get that done. No, seriously. So 
so I've been talking about the role that institutions have to play, but I also want to say that it's easy for individuals to blame the institution or to point the finger at the institution to play a role, but we all also have to play a role individually. And a lot of what we're doing as an institution, we could be doing individually. Energy-efficient lighting, for example. We could be doing that at home. Electric homes, we could be doing that at home. There's no reason to force the institution to do that, only the institution. Uh, sustainable practices, we could be doing that at home. And I know you're all doing it, but we could all be sensitizing other people in our families and neighbors to be doing it. Because this is one problem institutions cannot solve on their own. Individuals have to solve individually. Individuals have to solve collectively as part of the institutions. And institutions have to solve collectively as part of a state or the, uh, the city state or country state, right? So clearly, we all have a responsibility out here. And that is an important observation for all you to take back today. Uh, because it's not my problem. It's not your problem. It is our problem individually and collectively. All right. So today... I just want to say that what you're looking at, the four ministers who are going to be talking, they are the future. So we train them by educating. So as we talk about research centers, as we talk about implementations, we are also building a climate change minor program, a climate change minor in our education. The academic center is talking about building a climate change requirement into the whole curricula. When you do that, make sure you delete some other course. You cannot keep on adding courses. You have to keep the number of units constant. Okay. And lastly, I want to say it's the, between the students and the professors is a symbiotic relationship where we learn from each other. And it is this learning from each other that makes universities such an exciting place, such a place for making changes in this society. And it is these changes that make this country so exciting and such a great country. Okay. So let me just say... Uh, for our four students, who are our ministers of uh, the future, uh, they're very much like the characters in Dr. Robinson's Ministry of the Future. And I am the prime minister. And with that said, uh, my colleague, our executive vice chancellor, Dr. Elizabeth Simmons, please. Thanks very much, Chancellor Kosla. It's a really great pleasure to join you in uh, kicking off Earth Week this evening officially and launching uh, this exciting program tonight with our special guest speaker and UC San Diego alumna, alum, uh, Dr. Kim Stanley Robinson. Throughout our history, as the Chancellor was telling us, UC San Diego has been dedicated to research and applications and, and also, I would say, advocacy um, on topics related to climate change from identifying green, the greenhouse gas effect and many, many other steps that have been taken to educate the world and to try to do better locally. I wanted to mention a couple things that we've been doing as an educational institution. We partner, the, uh, the administration partners very closely with the Academic Senate to help prepare the next generation of leaders in climate change and uh, mitigating, mitigating climate change and developing innovative solutions. Um, at the K-12 level, our Sally Ride Science Program, for example, helps children learn about ideas like wind power and uh, designing sustainable cities of the future. At the undergraduate and graduate level, we have many degree programs, majors and minors, specializations, lifelong learning certificates in climate science, sustainability, environmental systems, environmental science. 
and our recently founded seventh college among all of our uh, undergraduate colleges has the theme, A Changing Planet, so that it brings undergraduates together to look at interdisciplinary solutions for um, uh, issues related to climate change and the attendant social issues like mass migration and uh, looking at the, um, the uh, implications of very rapid cultural and technological uh, changes. And uh, the Senate and the administration are, in fact, as the Chancellor mentioned, jointly uh, reviewing an innovative proposal for every uh, uh, undergraduate on our campus to take some coursework related to climate change before they graduate. And I noticed they very carefully avoided in the proposal requiring someone to take more units. It would all be built into what's going on. So we're, so we're good. We're good on that. All of these um, examples in research and advocacy and applications in education are, are tied together by the collective impact approach that we take on this campus to addressing large-scale challenges. We start with the numerous local efforts and programs that are launched by individuals or single departments, and we consciously invite them to weave together into larger, more interdisciplinary collaborations and institutes and thematic initiatives that can have a wider and more enduring impact. And in the area of climate change, the overarching theme that this name goes by is understanding and protecting the planet. And it's actually one of the foundational pillars of the campus strategic plan that the chancellor and the campus created together about a decade ago. And that's how very important these issues are to UC San Diego. It's really that embedded in everything we do. So finally, I just wanted to again thank the University Library and the University Librarian, um, our hosts today. As a world-class academic research library, the university library plays a vital role in partnering with units across the entire university community, bringing together students and faculty and alums, experts for innovative programming like tonight's events. And in an era like this, when the humanities often feel obligated to prove their value, as it were, I think that this event and this author show exactly how essential and relevant and inspiring literature can be as we address an, emerg an emergency that is global in every conceivable sense. So thank you. And now it's my pleasure to introduce my colleague, uh, Professor Kathy Gere, who is the chair of the Campus Climate Committee of the Academic Senate. And I think she will say a few words. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a conversation with Kim Stanley Robinson. <laughs> this is no ordinary book talk. This is a movement brought into being by one of the most audacious and inspiring books of our age, The Ministry for the Future, published in 2020. The book opens in 2025 in all our nightmares of climate change in a harrowing heat wave in India that kills 20 million people. It then tells the story of a fictional UN committee formed to respond to the climate crisis. 
charged with defending all living things, present and future, who cannot speak for themselves, the committee quickly acquires the nickname of the book's title. The author has described the book as the best case scenario you can actually believe in. Clocking in at over 100 short chapters, it is at once a rather nerdy review of the current most promising policies and how they might play out, as well as a staggering feat of universal imagination. Chapter two is narrated from the point of view of the sun. Anyone who has ever wondered what the arts and humanities are for need look no further. This is how you change the world with words. The book has spawned countless events like this one, including 470 attended by Stan himself, virtually and in person. He was a keynote speaker at COP26, the climate talks in Glasgow. He has addressed the United Nations, the US Federal Reserve, the Pentagon, and the World Bank. The United Nations is now convening a summit for the future based on this novel. For tonight's summit for the future, the emphasis is squarely on local action. Climate change is, above, is among other things, an infrastructure problem. And for global policy solutions to be effective, we are also going to have to work locally at the regional, municipal, and even the institutional levels advocating across party lines and political divides for unsexy things like decarbonized energy systems, building electrification, and mass transit. So in contrast to the planetary scope of the book, this event centers our home, the Kali Baja Bio region, a rough triangle of territory bisected by the US-Mexico border that overlaps with the traditional land base of the Kumeyaay people. Our vision for practical action is centered on this university. Luckily for us, Stan is a double alumnus of UCSD, and so he knows this place well. Our question for our panel of student ministers was a deceptively simple one. What does UCSD owe the future? Engaging this question, asks us to consider infrastructural transformations that don't always accord perfectly with the bottom line, with the least cost scenario. It means tough discussions about priorities and endless work on logistics. And in this endeavor, I am so grateful for the patience, forbearance, and ingenuity of all the brilliant engineers and administrators who keep the lights on at UCSD, our energy managers, the resource management and planning team, the Transportation Office, and the Sustainability Office. Tonight, we've reached an important milestone with the Chancellor's bold announcement that we will be moving forward with the decarbonization of campus. So um, let's hear it for the amazing leadership of our Prime Minister for the Future, Pradeep Khosla. We have reached a milestone and the struggle continues. The student ministers will be linking decarbonization with broader issues of environmental justice, 
and they'll be explaining something about what this means, you know, why it's significant, um, and discussing the all-important question of timeline. Um, and I would like now to welcome our ministers to the stage. The Ministers for Atmosphere and Health were nominated by faculty mentors. Keila Kimball, Minister for Atmosphere, is a PhD candidate in analytic and atmospheric chemistry in the Prather Lab. Emmett Norris, our Minister for Health, is a graduate student in geoscience in the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. Our Minister for Finance, Business Economics major, Emma Rodriguez, was nominated by the Green New Deal at UCSD. The Minister for Energy, Alex Andriatis, is a PhD candidate in physical oceanography at Scripps, who has been working with the Sustainability Office on Pathways to Decarbonization. A big thank you to the students and to their mentors, advisors, comrades, and collaborators. So, without further ado, let the games begin. Our first student minister is Keila Kimball, PhD candidate in analytical and atmospheric chemistry and our Minister for Atmosphere. When I was asked to be the Minister of the Atmosphere, I was elated because the atmosphere is actually the reason I'm here. Now, this isn't at all about me, but I do want to tell you all a little bit about myself. I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and for those of you all that may not know, my home is the start of an 85-mile stretch along the Mississippi River that is home to more than 150 petrochemical plants and refineries. It is also home to the highest number of cancer cases caused by air pollution leading to decreased life expectancies and increased miscarriages. I'll spare you all the statistics on that. Growing up in Cancer Alley and figuring out my purpose in the world, I knew I wanted to make a difference. So I packed my bags and came to UCSD, an institution known for its climate science activism and commitment to environmental justice. I knew that here I would acquire the knowledge, skills, and training needed to make a difference in my lifetime. And when I got here to UCSD, I learned a lot, like that the dust from Africa can see clouds in Southern California, and that the sewage being dumped into the Tijuana River can release toxins and viruses into the air at Imperial Beach and that UCSD itself is responsible for emitting more than 200,000 metric tons of CO2 each year. If you take nothing else away from what I say today, know this, our atmosphere has no borders. We all breathe the same air. So yes, we might be breathing in the literal garbage from Tijuana, but they're breathing ours as well, from both the past and the present, and they will be in the future if we don't implement change now. There's a very large difference between us and the communities surrounding us. Mostly societal differences, I should note, that are unjust and enhanced by this concept of borders and allow us to ignore the lived experiences of those in these communities. Human beings like us, who are aware of the inequalities they endure, but they lack the resources and opportunities we have, and most importantly, the responsibility that we have. As a minister for the future, we must hold ourselves accountable here at UCSD to make a difference locally so that we can be pioneers globally. The scientists here are the best of the best. And I realized while weeding the ministry for the future that ultimately it will be up to the scientists as experts to make the decisions needed to protect ourselves, others, and our planet from harm. 
And those decisions might be difficult. Like when the Indian government in the book decided that they should release a gas into the air to see clouds and lower global temperatures. Here at UCSD, we do state-of-the-art research to answer the questions of the right now and the future, like studying the properties of atmospheric gases and particles, determining which particles exactly see cloud formation and ice nucleation, and determining and modeling the effects of anthropogenic influences. But what's the use of studying how bad the problem is while we, contribute to con while we continue to contribute to it? We know what the problem is, and we know how bad it is, but now it's time to solve it. Not only are people suffering from decisions of the past and today, but our planet is suffering as well. We are an institution that has been well recognized for our research, but is that all we are, our research? Do we do all this stellar research to publish high impact papers, to get more funding, to do more research and publish more papers? I beg to differ. Now it's time for us to move beyond the science and funnel our knowledge and resources into implementing change. We must double down, as the chancellor just did, on our goal to minimize emissions, enforce ways to decrease our pollution and waste, and then aid, and I emphasize aid, the communities who are suffering unjustly to do the same. So that from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to the Imperial Beach and Tijuana area, and across the sea to Africa, we can all breathe in harmony despite the arbitrary borders we live within. Thank you, and now I'd like to welcome Emmett Norris, a graduate student in Earth Science, our Minister of Health. Hello, and I'm grateful to be here and to discuss and explore what true health looks like. Systemic respect and the urgent need to situate our institution inside the ecological and social systems we exist within, meaning the vast web of relationships that our lives depend upon, whether that be of food, money, laboratory, equipment, supplies, or clean air. Stan's book opens with a horror story. Millions die when a heat wave hovers over a region where mobility and resource access are low, and communication with those who have mobility, resources, and agency breaks down. In that moment, choices were limited and they were insufficient. And although this heat wave was fiction, heat waves are not, and currently millions live inside of the exact same environmental conditions that he describes. In reality, we are only an unexpected atmospheric event away from this future, this horror. Our institution must work towards a world where this never happens. So what is our agency and our responsibility in preventing this? As a PhD student at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, I study the geochemical and epidemiological systems of dust, of wildfire smoke, heavy metals, pesticides, particulate matter, and I study what controls them, humans and climate. I study the Imperial Valley, 90 miles east of here, in a region where people are exposed to extreme heat, toxic air quality, lack of mobility, and structural marginalization. I think a lot about respect and reciprocity, and I want to explore our connection to this region and the kind of explicit injustice that Stan writes about. While we here produce knowledge, education, innovations, farmers in the Imperial Valley produce 90% of the leafy greens that San Diego consumes, 20% of the melons, a very large amount of sweet potatoes, and a lot of dates as well. The Berkeley Labor Center estimates that 90% of California's agriculture workforce are immigrants, and about half of those are undocumented. A UC Davis study found that between 2000 and 2013, 
the Imperial County had the highest rate of heat-related deaths among agricultural workers. In this community, more than 20% of children have asthma, and although dire problems exist, such as access to water unpolluted by pesticides, widespread issues with lung health, and, and very acute issues um, of breathing, many do not seek care for fear of jeopardizing their families' lives in the process. The well-being of farmers and immigrants may sound like a discrete uh, political issue and not intimately connected to us, but the very scaffolding our capitalist system disguises these kinds of relationships which are integral to our lives and institutions. But we've come to a crossroads. Our survival depends on each other's survival, whether we like it or not. In 1960, UCSD was founded as an institution to focus on issues relevant to Southern California, whether that be in community engagement, social and scientific challenges, and that includes the Imperial Valley. So we have an express mandate to include their health in the basic functioning of our institution. And my pointed question is, how can UCSD meaningfully fulfill this obligation? Ministry of the Future poses the exact same question. It's a story about relationships, individual lives moving towards a collective goal of survival. Respecting and being accountable to our web of human and ecological relationships is the very first step. Turning towards or turning away from our most fundamental and local relationships may be the most important, courageous, and creative acts of our lives. It is insufficient to be content with accolades about our internal achievements. We must be rooted and committed to building an institution that is healthy for everyone who participates in it whether that be farmers who produce our food, the students who run this institution, and us, the community who benefits from it, all of us here. My point is, if this feels at all relevant to you and your circles of influence, I invite you to speak to me, us, further, to further this conversation. And next, I'd like to welcome our Minister of Finance, Emma Rodriguez, Class of 2023, Thurgood Marshall College, Business Economics major. What does UCSD owe to the future? That was the question posed to us for these talks, but I would argue that to fulfill the ministry's brief, to speak for all those living things who cannot speak for themselves, another question may be needed as well. What does UCSD owe to its surroundings and to the world? Let's start with what we're currently paying. First, we have direct costs, the prices that we pay for goods and services. But most markets also have externalities, and these are unintended and or uncompensated costs imposed on third parties, sometimes causing them harm. The health costs to the people who supply our fuel, manufactured goods, and food constitute a particularly harsh negative externality. Keila and Emmett have given us some vivid examples in Louisiana and in Imperial uh, County. Greenhouse gas emissions are also a negative externality. We can imagine the world as having a carbon budget with about 350 billion tons of carbon left to emit before we hit 2.7 degrees of Fahrenheit of global temperature rise. At that tipping point, the cost of CO2 will skyrocket in ways that are difficult to fully quantify. But happily, there are ways to solve this market problem now before we hit that point. Traditional economics suggests creating taxes or imposing costs to incentivize companies, individuals, and institutions to stop polluting or otherwise engaging in those activities that cause harm. 
In Ministry for the Future, however, that script is flipped. Instead of imposing costs, central banks band together to create money in order to pay for stranded assets, like the natural gas that we currently frack that must be left in the ground as we transition to clean energy. In reality, both of those solutions are going to be needed, but we as individuals don't have a big say in what central banks and federal governments do. Instead, we can hone in on our surroundings and apply our favorite economic principles directly. Here at UCSD, as a science-based institution, we are able to take those direct steps to reduce our reliance on those products with major negative impacts like fossil fuels. UCSD emitted over 200,000 tons of CO2 in 2021, as Gila told us. And that's the equivalent of driving around the Earth two and a half times every hour. And we can actually price that externality out. The social cost of carbon is an EPA figure that estimates the annual economic harm from emitting one additional ton of CO2. Using that, UCSD's emissions cost our surroundings and the world over $41 million a year. There are other ways to source our energy and exist as an institution. And it turns out we're going to take those ways. And because we are a public university, which has done more than any other to define the climate problem, we have an obligation to take those steps. You might say it's what we owe. As Emma just said, UCSD is a large emitter of carbon dioxide, contributing to the climate crisis. Keela and Emmett described how harmful air pollution produced here on campus directly impacts the health of our local communities. To meet its obligations to people and the climate, UCSD needs to rapidly reduce its emissions. This past year, I've been working with the UCSD Sustainability Office, investigating the pathways that our campus can take to reduce its emissions. At the heart of UCSD's emissions is a power plant, which burns fracked methane gas in turbines and boilers to generate electricity, heating, and cooling for campus buildings. UCSD can eliminate its em emissions through a process called electrification. Instead of burning fossil fuels, the technology exists today to heat and cool campus using renewable electricity. The primary device that enables electrification is called a heat pump. The general working principle of a heat pump is that it's a refrigerator in reverse, moving heat from where it already exists to where it needs to go. For example, the waste heat generated by the servers at the San Diego supercomputer could be used to heat water in undergraduate dorms, cooling the servers at the same time. This process is very efficient and would use up to five times less energy than the current system. It sounds futuristic, but this isn't a sci-fi concept. Last year, in homes across the US, Heat pumps replaced gas furnaces as the most installed home heating system. At UCSD, electrification would eliminate emissions of greenhouse gases and polluting aerosols, instead using renewable electricity supplied by California's rapidly decarbonizing grid. Instead of being subject to volatile natural gas prices and the geopolitics of fossil fuels, campus would rely on predictable long-term electricity contracts. The efficiency of electrified systems would cut total energy use in half, moving us closer to the 2,000-watt descri society described in Ministry for the Future. Finally, electrification will save the university money in the long run, as it is the cheapest way to decarbonize campus. Electrification is already happening at other campuses. Stanford replaced its power plant with an electrified system in 2015, cutting its total emissions by 80%. Within the UC, 
Berkeley and Davis have committed to electrification and are beginning their energy transition. UCSD has also taken its first steps to plan for electrification. After initial studies in 2016 and 2021, this year a detailed engineering review will be conducted as part of a UC-wide decarbonization planning initiative. As ministers for the future of the UCSD community, we applaud Chancellor Coastal's commitment today to electrification by 2030 and encourage and look forward to the rapid transition to an electrified, emission-free campus. Thanks. I'll welcome Kathy back up for some concluding remarks. Oh, we're going to do it, folks. <laughs> it's so exciting. Um, yeah, and uh, I just want to thank our superb ministers. Don't you feel safe in their hands? Um, so now, what you've all been waiting for, um, I would like to invite Kim Stanley Robinson, um, the uh, esteemed and globally influential author um, uh, who's coming home to UCSD tonight and, um, and Eric Mitchell, our university librarian, to um, have a conversation about the future. Thank you very much. Wow. That was impressive, wasn't it, Stan? Oh, my gosh. Thank you. <laughs> that was amazing. It's really amazing. Thank you so what much. What should be doing. So maybe that's a great place to start tonight. Um, I'm curious, what reflections do you have uh, on what our ministers just said? It's pretty clear that the, we can do it. The solutions are there. Um, it's a necessity, and we know that necessity exists, and people are uh, frightened. And I think this is partly a result of the, the years of COVID, um, teaching us that the biosphere can um, hammer our habits and make everybody behave differently. And now that we know that and we're getting the news from our scientific community of the dangers of um, our carbon burn, that the decarbonization of society is um, becoming a generally agreed upon necessary process. And that wasn't true, even when I wrote Ministry for the Future in 2019. So um, we're in, since, since World War II, we've been in the great acceleration. This is what the social scientists tell us, everything that we've measured. And um, within the great acceleration, there are moments of extra acceleration. And in this new world, of a speeded up history with an emergency, a kind of existential crisis facing us. You get the pieces of the puzzle from our four wonderful speakers and, and also the elements, um, health of people in a biosphere and the air that we breathe that we can't not breathe. I used to do an exercise with student groups. Let's all hold our breath for four minutes now. And, you know, at the end of that exercise, which was only about 30 seconds, we understood better uh, that and also the crucial aspect of the technology and of the economics of it. And indeed, my ministry focuses a lot on the economics of it because although we have the means to do it, 
We don't pay ourselves to do the right things. We are in a system where people get paid for extraction and exploitation and appropriation, and, uh, um, and it's unsustainable, and we've hit the moment where it no longer will sustain. But it, there's, no, there's nothing radical, nothing particularly radical, about paying for ourselves to do the right thing by way of governments deciding to do it, governments paying for it through both um, legislation like the IRA bill or monetary policy like quantitative easing. So between carbon quantitative easing out of the central banks and legislation that says government's going to pay for this stuff, that goes out into the private economy, the world of business, of private businesses. They get paid to do the right things. And even tricky things like a carbon coin, where if you draw down a ton of CO2, you get uh, one carbon coin that will be supported by the central bank. So this is not a cryptocurrency, which I have to explain. (laughs) Cryptocurrency is a kind of, um, um, well, a scam, really. And But central bank money is mystically powerful. You don't want to look too closely about why that is true because it, it <laughs> makes you realize that we trust each other more than we think we do. Um, but even, I mean, a carbon coin would be great, but it isn't even necessary. You only need what used to be called Keynesian economics or, or belief in government. And so when... I'm seeing this. I, I'm, I have indeed been going around the world or um, visiting the world by way of my Zoom screen um, this last two and a half years, and I am seeing it consistently over and over again. So um, um, it, it was a beautiful um, presentation, um, and I, I, I believe in it. Yeah. I think, you know, something that really stood out for me in Ministry for the Future was how tightly woven together all of those solutions were. Could you talk a little bit about how you can kind of created that notion? You know, how did that come into being in your book? Well, I'm an English major (laughs) and a UCSD literature major. So if any of you are out there, yay. Um, It's a small crowd, but a happy crowd. And I was well educated at UC San Diego. Um, I got both my bachelor's degree in English and American literature and a PhD in English and American literature. And like many years later, it was a, a, that was somewhat of a foolish thing to do, but I don't regret it. I mean, going for both degrees in one place, it's said to be bad for you. I, it's been good for me, so um, I don't worry about that too much. So as an English major, I'm, looking, I'm a novelist. I love novels. Novels are capacious. The reason they're called novel is just because they're new, but they're not restricted as to what goes into them. They're a gigantic grab bag of different genres from before that get thrown together into a mix. And so the notion that you would just have uh, 20 dramatized scenes in a row, which very often happens in novels, those can be good novels, but they haven't exhausted the form of the novel, which can be... a junkyard or a kitchen sink principle, it can be a a, a horribly gigantic mess and still be a good novel, which I love that because I tend to make giant messes. Um, (laughs) And in this case, the, the genres include everything that you can imagine in the novel, but the one that was crucial for me was the eyewitness account 
which is not the same as a dramatized scene in a novel. You don't set the stage and the character wakes up and then they have a conversation. And then in an eyewitness account, someone has seen something and they're being interviewed about it 10 years later. They're witnessing. And they don't tell you what they had for breakfast that morning. They say, look, I was on the square when the revolution happened and I had a chunk of of rock in my hand. I was going to throw it, but I didn't. And so a story that goes like that was my salvation in terms of the formal organization of Ministry for the Future. Wow. Yeah. In one, of the, uh, one of the scenes that really stood out to me in the book was uh, the story of L.A. and people taking refuge on the bridges. I could uh, imagine that because I had actually just recently ridden down the spillways of some of those L.A. rivers so I could actually see them uh, you know, filling up in my head as I, as I read that section. Um, I'm wondering, could you chat with us a little bit more about how places you've experienced are presented in the book, you know, California or other locations? Oh, sure. I mean, I'm a Southern California boy. I grew up in Orange County, so that's really L.A. South. Uh, But Orange County is, I mean, it has a mildly different culture, but really it's all just one from, from Santa Barbara down to here, really. I'm a Southern California boy. And so drowning L.A. in a gigantic atmospheric river was a a lot of fun. It it could just, you know, a a remake, as they would say in Hollywood, a remake of L.A. would be very cool and it might have to happen. I mean, the Central Valley of California, as some of you will know, was entirely underwater for the entire Central Valley, a lake 400 miles long and 50 miles wide for the whole winter of 1862-63. And, you know, we had a little version of that this year. It could happen. And the backing of the mountains here in San Diego and all the way up through the San Gabriels is such that something big hits and it could get uh, flooded here. Well, that's just one thing. And I guess you asked about where I've lived. Since it's a global novel and and a kind of a crazy novel, um, I needed some anchors in you know, a local habitation and a name. And my wife and I lived in Zurich for two years in the 80s. We were young. We didn't have kids. We were in Europe for the first time. We were, And Zurich turns out to be beautiful and warm, kind to strangers. And so we had two great years there that passed by like that. Um, but I, I had never written about it before. And since this was a UN novel... Um, I thought, well, Geneva, the prices are high. There's too many UN agencies already there. Zurich is sure to steal one. So I put it in Zurich because I wanted to. And that was a great pleasure. It, there's, you have to have some pleasures in a novel. A novel, okay, climate change. The world is going to be smashed. We have to fix it. That is not really my cup of tea as a novel reader because I read for fun. And everybody reads novels for fun. So having a sense of a place that I loved and be able to write that into it also, it was a big help. Wow. Um, yeah, I, uh, I've only been to Zurich once, um, but I was, something you described in the book was how gray that city is or how gray the skies could be. So I remember that vividly. Um, <laughs> so I mean, our ministers talked about it earlier, this notion of acting you know, locally, thinking globally. Chancellor Kostolo brought this up. Um, and it's really a big theme in ministry for the future of kind of the, the work that has to happen on a personal scale and the intense coordination that occurs across the globe. I know you're asked to speak on all this all the time. Maybe could I ask you just to expand on that idea a little bit? Yeah. Um, it's a, because it's a novel about an invented UN agency, although the Paris Agreement um, sets up 
the uh, right for the COP process to have a standing committee that goes all year round. So I made it up from out of the text of the Paris Agreement. Um, it's, it, but it is a IPCC, UN, Paris Agreement. It's kind of a top-down novel. And when people say, oh, the, you know, the people at the UN, they really like your book, Ministry of the Future, I'm thinking, well, yeah, UN saves the world. People at the UN <laughs> like this book. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a mystery why it's popular there. But what about all of us, all the rest of us? And I, I did, I went to Glasgow. I was at COP26. It was astonishing. And I did 38 events in 12 days, and I ran from appointment to appointment, literally running often because I didn't get into their underground system. It was uh, exhilarating, and it taught me a lot. But then I got home. And you can talk about saving the world and the global issues, the carbon balance, the 350 billion tons we have left, uh, and et cetera. And then... You're back at home, and obviously your individual efforts in your house, as important as they are, especially for prosperous Americans, uh, we can definitely do a lot by cutting our carbon burns. Nevertheless, it's um, isolated and individual, and it's not going to be enough, et cetera. So what, what do you do? I, uh, there's an organization called Cool Davis. So it's like the Climate Action Organization here at UC San Diego, and I'm convinced that almost every town in the country, maybe on the planet, has some kind of environmental group. And in fact, chapter 85 in my book, I know the number because people have told it to me so often. It's just a list of organizations doing good things internationally around the world. In the audio book, they read it with different accents of English. It's quite a beautiful, it takes about 15 minutes, I'm told, to listen to it. And it's just a list of organizations. Well, I, I joined Cool Davis and uh, I have to admit that I also live in Village Homes, a tiny community in West Davis. It's um, 220 households, so maybe it's about 600 or 800 people. We don't even know. And, and we had a preschool. And some people moved into our village. They joined the board of directors, which is you know, supposed to not do anything and just keep things running. And this board of directors killed our preschool. So I've joined the board of directors of Village Homes, which I did before in the 90s, but it's really something for enthusiasts to do, and I had to rejoin it, and we're fighting to get a preschool back. And it's quite intense. It's, it's often true. The smaller the political um, playground, the more vicious it is. <laughs> you just want to kill people. Um, and yet, it's a war of words, and you're engaged. So everybody can do this. And please, I hope you don't have to save a preschool. It's very, I mean, it died. So it's very much harder to bring something back that has been wrecked than it is to preserve something good that is there. So there are different kinds of work to be done. And in my, my case, it's been, I love my fellow board of directors, my, my directors, they're great, and we're doing something tangible that can actually matter. And I think we all have opportunities to do these tangible things. And then the global is a, a bigger political process that we have to act in as citizens. So citizenry is becoming really a, a crucial thing worldwide. What does it mean? What do you do to express it? I mean, it's a work in progress. Yeah. So uh, any advice for UC San Diego? Uh, maybe it's a better to say this. I love UC San Diego. Um, yeah. Now, a part of this is nostalgia because I'm saying it was my 20s. In fact, 
I tell people that I moved from 1955 to 1970 in a single hour's drive. Because when I was a freshman and I came down to UCSC from Orange County, I had been living in 1955. And I arrived on campus, and it was seriously 1970. Like, oh my god. Um, And so I'm nostalgic for my own youth. I'm nostalgic for the 70s. Could you say that? It was very (laughs) seriously crazy. Um, a decade hard to describe, although we're reaching levels of 70s-style craziness now. So it's not as if it's inconceivable. That, um, but I, I got a good education here. I had friends. It was beautiful. Yeah. So nothing to complain about. Just, you know, keep doing it. <laughs> more students, more onward. Um, I, had, I lived three years on campus, on the Muir campus. I moved up to Del Mar, and then I moved to Solana Beach, and then I moved to Cardiff, and then I moved to Encinitas, and then, yes, I moved to Lucadia. So I was <laughs> drifting north with the waves. Um, I only applied to one college out of high school, UC San Diego, because I came down here on a visit, and I saw the beach, and I said, why would I apply anywhere else? So now the beaches are in danger. I mean, this is really kind of a scary thing, and UCSD being part of the solution is not a surprise to me. This place is a power spot on the earth, partly the cliffs and the eucalyptus trees. It's a power spot in the sense of a, a place that is beautiful, and then ever since 1960, really talented people have come here to teach, be students, and administer the place, and also the architecture and design. Rather superb for multi-generational. I don't even know how they did it. How do you keep continuity of vision over 60 years? Well, I don't know. It's, I think it's a little bit mysterious how great UCSD is. It's a, a certain, to me, a certain magic. And of course, I am confusing this with nostalgia. But nevertheless, there's something real and great going on here. Yeah. So you mentioned COP26, and uh, you know, I think uh, earlier I heard you had done 400 some odd events. Tell us a little bit about the last couple of years. I think this this book seems like it might have taken over your life a little bit. Yes. <laughs> yes. That. Um, it's great. It's, it's, it's not only what I would hope for my own books to do in the world as a constant thing as a science fiction writer, but also the, a lot, I believe in the novel as an art form. And when people are responding this strongly to a novel, it says the novel can still do things. So think about this. You sit with a book and you re- look at black marks on a page and you're thinking as you read for, I don't know, oh, two weeks, 25 hours, however long it takes you, you're there. And the reader is co-creating it. And this is the power of the novel, is that the reader is actually doing the imagining and the sentences on the page are prompts for one's own imagination. So a book can um, come across in readers' minds as a total piece of crap or a total masterpiece, depending on how it connected up with their own ability to uh, imagine it. Do the characters seem real? Do the scenes seem lively? This is mysterious stuff, but clearly the novel can still work. And it doesn't have to be about the bourgeois subject going through their own little domestic tragedies and not even noticing the world ever. I mean, good novels are written in that form, but that's a genre. And the novel can be way bigger than that. Um, I'm thinking Balzac and George Eliot. I'm thinking of the the pre-modernist 19th century novel. That it, What is it doing? 
it's giving us a cognitive map of our social reality. And this is being very analytical about it, kind of English major stuff here. But um, what, is thing, what, is, what does life mean? Well, we only know that from stories. And novels are really long, complicated, interesting stories. So if it's stories that give us meaning, then you go to the best stories to get the deepest meanings. And if the novel could do that, great. Now, uh, this can go too far. The, the novelist is semi-irrelevant. The book's out there. I, I'm asked to go talk to people who know way more about the topic than I do, um, which is strange and um, uh, tricky. <laughs> and I, I often think, well, if you read the book, then, um, you know, I, I, I channeled it in 2019. I, I got some opinions. I've learned some things since that are maybe worth sharing, but it's really just back to the book. And I, I, I often feel like the, the curator for the work of a close relative that I only hear from by way of letters. <laughs> it's strange. And also, I'd rather be writing the next book then, um, uh, but on the other hand, and my friend Joshua Clover, one of my teachers at UC Davis, because I am still a student at all times, as the chancellor pointed out, not even, not just when I'm here, but everywhere, I'm always still a student. Uh, I still listen to the lectures of my teacher here at UC San Diego, Frederick Jameson. They record his talks at Duke. I listen to them as a podcast. They're fantastic. So Joshua Clover says to me, Stan, just shut up, quit complaining, do your job, this is your work now, you can write later, you got to ride this particular wave. And so he's given me some comfort, because I was kind of freaking out. I would rather be writing than almost anything else. And I spent 30 years sitting in my front yard writing novels all day like a, like a fairy under an abalone shell. I never had to do anything um, except bring up kids, which was hard, but not the same as this stuff. So I have gone through a couple of freakouts and then rallied. And I must say, you know, amongst all those things, coming to UCSD is like, okay, finally something good. So I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> all right, I love that. Um, I can imagine, uh, yeah, being an author speaking at COP26 or speaking to these other places is, is weird. Um, I know, I think you just said this, right, with freakouts and calming yourself, but tell us a little bit more about what, that, what that's like. Well, COP26, the, these COP things, they're worth describing, I think, because I got there, and there are 40,000 people there, and there's a, a red zone where the UN is negotiating the next statement to come out of the COP system. There will be a statement agreed on by all the nations on Earth of, of true consensus, or consensus in the meaning of everybody has to sign off on every word. It makes it slow, but it makes it powerful. And so there's a red zone. Then there's a blue zone, which is kind of like a trade show for the nations. Look how great our nation is uh, involved with climate change. And, and big nations buy giant pavilions, and, and all of West Africa had a closet. I mean, it was sad. The, the differentiation of rich and poor and the Paris Agreement is actually quite good on the differentiation of rich and poor. The richer countries have more responsibility to pay for an act and to help the poorer countries. It's a Paris Agreement. It's, that is a very good document. And I met Christiana Figueres and got to congratulate for her. She's a kind of Mary Murphy for real, and she drove that process. So I got there, and then the, the Green Zone is kind of a general public. Everybody can go. There were um, programs about... 
climate change and activists out on the streets. There were three marches in Glasgow, one of 100,000 people, which I stood next to Bill McKibben as they walked by, all 100,000, and everybody's going, oh my God, there's Bill McKibben. And about one out of 20 of them go, oh my gosh, he's with Kim Stanley Robinson. I was thinking, whoa. And then I was in a march with 10,000 people. That was also cool. And a march with 100 people where there were more police than uh, marchers because I don't think they had a license. But these were people from all over Scotland. They had brought their kids. It was very beautiful to see this. Um, And I was in the blue zone at my UN group, which was a place where I could sleep, eat. Um, It was so exhausting that I would go into their back workroom and just lie down on the floor, and they, oh, it stands here. He's, I, I spoke there often. They adopted me. And finally, Coco Warner, who ran that UN pavilion, she said, Stan, who invited you to COP26? <laughs> and I, I was looking at her thinking, I thought you did. <laughs> and it was, it was, she saw the look on my face, and she started cracking up. She said, well, we'll find out, because you've got a red pass. I said, what's a red pass? And she said, you, let us figure, let us teach you some things. So they took me under their wing. And a red pass, was, I was invited by Nigel Topping, um, the UK um, government official who was running COP26. He had read Ministry for the Future along with Christiana Figueres. And, and so he invited me and gave me a red pass to go into the negotiating uh, sessions. I could do that because of my red pass. And so as Coco and... Um, Michael Weisberg and Zaid Alrad Hussein, who is a phenomenal diplomat from Jordan, as they educated me, they told me which sessions to go into. I went into the red zone. I, I spent almost all the rest of my time that week in the red zone watching actual negotiations. What's going on here? Well, they're editing sentences. And I like to edit sentences. I spend most of my life editing sentences. And these were, and I'm going to say this, this was like 65% young women. And when I say young, I mean 30s and 40s. But they're young to me, and there were distinctly more of them than men doing the actual work of the document. The speeches at the end of the day, the big public stuff, there you see a lot more men. But in the actual work, these women were lawyers, diplomats, and scientists, and they were cheerful, they were meticulous, they were hardworking, they were totally focused. None of them spoke for more than like two minutes at a time. They would turn their mic on, turn it back off, give it back over. There was a real ethos of let's get this done. Although one time I watched for an hour as they tried to decide whether the data in one table should be in rows or in columns. (laughs) And because my wife is a statistician, I knew that this is actually serious, you know, that it matters in terms of comprehending the information, whether it's in rows or columns. But when I told my, my friends and helpers about at the UN room, they were, they groaned. They said, that's why we're doomed. You know, this process is so slow. How could you spend an hour talking about rows or columns? Although I had quite liked it. Um, and, but they're more impatient because the UN has been seeing this. This was COP26. 26 years had gone by. And Glasgow was the first one after COVID, so it was new. And they were hoping for a burst of speed and energy, which did not quite eventuate. And then the following year in Egypt, they, they did... The, one thing about the Paris Agreement is, in the agreement itself, it says every year you have to up your promises. 
the ratchet is turning on your promises year by year. That's in the agreement itself. So every year, as they gather, they're going to be thinking, what can we do now? We're already overpromised. We're already breaking our promises because people back home don't believe in us. This is a mess. What can we ratchet up? And in Egypt, it was the loss and damage fund to compensate nations that get hammered by climate change. That fund is right now empty, but um, in COP28, in the United Arab Emirates, um, Dubai or Abu Dhabi, wherever it's going to be, the, they're going to have to put some money into that fund from, or else it's beginning to look like a sham. And the whole COP process, I'm told by Zaid Hussein, who is this um, canniest diplomat that I know and a great teacher, he said that the process itself can break if we don't make it real. So this was my uh, COP26 education, and um, I was impressed. Everybody's frightened by how slowly it's going. Everybody's frightened by the fact that these are just promises. And I'll end with this. When I left, I was thinking to myself, it's like every country on earth has to get into a gigantic group marriage. It's marriage. You promise, okay? I'll live with you for the rest of my life, and I'll be good to you. But the divorce rate is like 50% for marriages in America. And a promise is just a promise, and then you have to live it out. So pressure shouldn't be put on the COP process. Pressure should be put on at all times. And the COP process is a place to point at it, to what we're doing, to reconsider, to look, to renew the promise, whatever. And that's all it is. It doesn't have force of law. It doesn't ha- There's no sheriff. You won't get thrown in jail if you break these promises. Many countries will break them. So it's not a salvational space, but it's way better than nothing at all. Wow. I think, uh, you know, again, something that stood out to me in ministries, I actually was waiting for the book to get positive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, but I think your, you know, your story just now of COP is is really an inspiring one. You had another character, or had a character, Mary, of course, was a very inspiring character. You had another character in ministry, Frank who was kind of on the dark side, right? Was was grappling with all this stuff in a different way. I, could you tell us a little bit more about how you, I don't know, how you built that tension or how you thought about optimism and success and the, the risk that comes? Well, um, Frank is, is suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, which is one of the signal disorders of our time. Um, new in its name, um, PTSD, autism. These are new names for old conditions. You know, you go from shyness to autism. You go from being human to being post-traumatic stress disorder. Because it is what I'm thinking now, and what inspired me with Frank, is we are all post-traumatic, or we will be. Most of us, when, you're, when I say this, you're thinking, well, yeah. I had that trauma, or maybe more than one. You know what it is, but not everybody gets the stress disorder. So why is that? And how do you successfully cope with the trauma that's inevitable from being human? Very often, premature death. Not just death, but premature death, or violent death, or both. So how do you um, go on? And so, I mean, Frank doesn't really do very well. He does his best. Um, I was interested in that just as a novelist with characters. And it felt transgressive as hell. You have a young man kidnap an older woman. That it very often ends in a woman being killed. 
And then later on, she keeps visiting him. Well, this is maybe Stockholm syndrome or Lima syndrome, which is the opposite. You can name these things, but in fact, it's weird. It's a, a transgressive and awkward relationship. And so as a novelist, I was thinking, I don't know what's going to happen here. And that was gold because I was writing up two characters. I, they were in a, well, first of all, the scene where he kidnaps her is electrifying. I, I say that because I tried to read it once aloud to an audience. It was a, a disaster, but it was my home crowd in San Francisco, so they forgave me. It's too hard to read. Um, but after that, putting them in a room together and watching Frank um, try to cope. Well, we're all going to be post-traumatic, or we all are, are ready. We don't want the stress disorder. So what do you do? Um, it was a, this is what novels are best at. You throw characters in a situation, and this is called plot. Something goes wrong. Oh, good, a plot. You want something to go wrong in a novel. If it doesn't, I've done this before. People get quickly bored. <laughs> um, something goes wrong. And then what happens to these characters afterwards? And I don't know in advance. By no means do I have a sense of what's going to happen in a novel. And if I did, that would be kind of painful to try to type it out. Tedious or uh, impossible. I just find out what happens by going there. So as a novel, that was the golden zone. I was trying to think about Frank. But it's also a real thing. I'm post-traumatic. My family is, but so many other people are as well. And I feel like maybe we don't have the stress disorder, although everybody, you know what I mean, you're on the edge of it. Uh, insomniac moments, uh, there's many reasons to be afraid. Uh, so um, it was one of the points of salvation to have a novel with characters that I began to believe in. Wow. So uh, we uh, asked folks to submit questions um, when they registered. So I've got a bunch of those questions to draw on. Before we turn there, though, I actually would love to hear a little bit more about just your time at UC San Diego. Um, I think you, you kind of shared you started your career as a writer here. Oh, I did. Yes. Uh, I thought we were going to be in the Central Library here because I said I didn't know there was this library. <laughs> um, uh, I start, started writing on the sixth floor of the Central Library on the eastern side so I could see the hills. Um, and I also wrote in the Muir Commons, the, the underneath the Muir uh, dorms, that little coffee shop that was down in there. I decided that I needed to be like Hemingway, so I'd go there in the evening and buy a cup, a coffee cup of wine. I think it was in those days, red wine, terrible, like Red Mountain or Boone Hill. And I would sip wine, which I hated, and I would write by hand. And I was becoming a writer at UCSD. It was very romantic. It was super romantic. And so I was here a long time, and I taught, I reckon now I taught 66 uh, classes of freshman composition during my time here, because uh, it was two a quarter for 11 years, for three quarters each. And I wanted to be a visiting lecturer. I wanted to teach freshman composition. I didn't want to be an English professor. I thought it was more important to teach writing. This was my hippie radical values. Teach writing. Don't teach people to read a novel. Everybody knows how to read a novel. So I was here a long time. I worked hard. I loved the students. I learned more from them than they learned from me. But they, I know how to use commas. <laughs> and some of them do too. <laughs> so I think actually this is a great segue. Uh, one of our first questions from an audience member was about the Clarion Workshop. Uh, so maybe could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. A Clarion a science fiction writer's workshop. Um, it began in 
1970 at Clarion College, Pennsylvania, went to Tulane for two years, went to Michigan State for more than 30 years, and in 20, 2006, a, um, my friend Karen Fowler, wonderful writer, and she was at that point Clarion's main um, uh, teacher figure, told me that Clarion was going to die, that Michigan State had defunded it, and it was nothing but a program at Michigan State at that point. And so I said... Um, a little uncarefully, I said, I bet UC San Diego would take it. And she said, hmm, will you look into that? And I, I had to agree. And so that was 2006, and between Michael Bernstein, Dean of Arts and Humanities, Don Wayne, chair of the English department, who had been one of my colleagues as a graduate student just a couple years ahead of me, but now he was chair of the English department, the literature department here, Gabriella Wienhausen, provost of Six College, and Jim Shea in development, they all, and Jim Shane knew how to actually make a foundation and make a, an administration, um, uh, well, not make them, but show them how it would be done for Clarion to come to UC San Diego, which we did in 2007. And I see, say, we with a certain amount of chagrin, because I'm stuck with it, like when you get your finger cut, caught in the, in the door jam, you know, between UCSD and Clarion, where I was a student in 1975, I'm stuck with it. It's a good program. It's a summer program at UCSD. It's by far the best fiction teaching program on earth because students come in for six weeks and live together. And six professional writers come to talk to them, uh, one per week. And, and yet, a, a pair of them on the last two weeks, because Damon Knight and Kate Wilhelm would come for the last two weeks. This turn was because they were married and they wanted to do it, but it turns out having two writers together in the last two weeks is better than having a poor sixth-week writer that comes in and is just lost in the shuffle of people going away. So Clarion has been great. And Mark Themans was helpful, by the way, at the dean of the, when he was dean of the physical sciences in this early process, inviting people over to his lab. You could watch him throw um, liquid nitrogen at their feet, and it would shriek, and it would turn into smoke or whatever it is. It was beautiful. So... Um, it's still here. It's going, it's going well. It's now un, part of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. A number of first-rate science fiction and fantasy writers have come out of it. Um, Monica Byrne, Sam, um, Sam Fisher, Car Carmen Marchado, Grady Hendricks, I'm thinking of just the UCSD ones because us older Clarion graduates are not specifically UCSD products. But believe me, UCSD's Clarion has been effective and, and um, a lot of fun. So um, every summer, 18 students are having their minds boggled here. And I told them all to go out to the cliffs at sunset every day. And you know, it's like the parents talking to the kids, go outside, go outside and play because they're maniacs and they're writing all the time. And some of them would go out there. So huh. it mattered. Yeah. I, um, it's really amazing, all the great authors that come out of UC San Diego. I'm thinking of the new writing series workshop around poetry. And certainly you and I chatted a little bit earlier today about other authors uh, who the library's hosted uh, who have, you know, come out of San Diego. Um, a second question from an audience member actually relates to writing. They ask, do you think that fiction or journalism is a more impactful path for new writers? Oh, man, I'm going to say fiction, but this is just because I'm a fiction writer. This is not the right question to ask me. 
because I have been writing journalism in the last uh, few years. Uh, uh, Op-ed pieces is what they come down to, 1,000 words. My novels are about 165,000 words. And then in 1,000 words, I'm just getting this, getting, I've just cleared my throat and oops, it's over. Um, But op-ed pieces are a bad genre. I mean, this is what I think. Um, This is my opinion. Oh, good. Why do you think that? Oops, the essay's over. So, um, I mean, I read the op-ed columns. A lot of us from newspaper culture read the op-ed columns. That's a bad genre. Um, I don't care what these people's opinions are. They can't back them up. They, They have their viewpoints. It's, it's a, it's a waste of time to write them and to read them. Now, larger journalism, long-form journalism, creative nonfiction, whatever. Um, and by the way, I say that about op-ed pieces even though I keep reading them. So that's the way it is with addictions. Um, of course it's important. And we can think of, everybody can think of the nonfiction writers who have changed your view of things. And some of them are really important because they are political. But Naomi Klein, every book of Naomi Klein's has taught us more. And and talk about cognitive mapping. Like, why does this world work the way it does? You read her, you you understand things better. You can slot the onrush of information into a system of understanding. And and fiction is free to play other games, like I was talking about before. Nonfiction is there to give you a cognitive map or add to your already existing cognitive map. And so if that's what... Uh, you're called to do as a writer. The uh, I guess the, the the problem with this question is the idea that you get to choose. <laughs> it chooses you. You ha- you're good at one thing or another, and then it makes you do that. So if someone's saying I get to choose between writing fiction or writing nonfiction, I'm, I'd be thinking, really? You know, I wonder. Um, you know, do you really believe that? Give it a try and see what comes out. Wow. All right. So um, we got several questions about backpacking. And so you wrote another book, uh, High Sierras, A Love Story. Um, and so the specific, one of the specific questions we got is whether or not you have any trip recommendations. But maybe you could, maybe you could reflect on your book and give us some trip recommendations. I was a junior at UCSD when I went to the Sierras for the first time. And I told the story in my book, so I hope it isn't too tedious or alarming to tell it again, that uh, the 100 yards up the trail, my good buddy Terry Bear, my mountain guru figure and roommate through most of college, gave me a little tab of acid and said, eat this, Stan. And I said, oh, good. And I did. And my first day in the Sierra Nevada was on LSD. And I tell you this, I never came down. (laughs) That was like August of 1973, and I have been permanently changed by, and the acid, sure, why not? It's been rehabilitated. It's strangely effective for people suffering strange problems now. It is deeply stupid to take when you don't know how much you're taking of it and wander off by yourself, but that's what we did and survived it. But the Sierras were what stayed with me because that... First trip was in Desolation Wilderness. We drove by the entire Southern Sierra to get to Lake Tahoe to go to Desolation Wilderness because Terry liked the name. Desolation. You know, Desolation, oh my God, how could it? There's no no place better on Earth, which is only semi-true because we had driven by, you know, Mount Langley, Mount Whitney, Split Mountain, Bishop, Lone Pine, Levining to get up to Tahoe. We did that for a few years before 
we began to understand that the Southern Sierras are even more so than all the good qualities of desolation, as much as I love desolation. So um, in terms of trip recommendations, it's very easy from here. Go up Highway 15 until you run into Highway 395. Go up 395, and the moment you pass um, Lone Pine, California, take a left anywhere, right. even in Lone Pine, <laughs> all the way up to, say, Levining or, or Bridgeport. Take a left anywhere, go up to the trailhead where the road ends, go up and over the, the, the crest of the range on any trail that you accidentally get hit on, it's going to be fine. It's going to be one of the greatest uh, trips of your life because that whole stretch is magically great. And it took me many years to discover that. But I say this to you now. It's a no-brainer because you don't have to make a choice. You just go up there and hang a left. Make sure you have a map, maybe. <laughs> Whatever. I would go up. I say this to students here at UCSD and anywhere. It's amazing to be a Californian and have that range up there. And now you probably should get a wilderness permit, although you understand that rec.gov is owned by an arms manufacturer. So if you want to slip up there without a wilderness permit, I give you my permission. Uh, yeah. So anywhere will do. I love it. This is recorded. Oh, We're going on. <laughs> Ranger Rick, I didn't say it. And so uh, I know we're, we're coming close on time. So maybe I'll just in, invite your kind of last thoughts with this last question. Um, somebody said, well, you know, Stan, if you had a billion dollars to support climate change, what would you do with it? Oh, man. Well, um, it's both not enough and it's a, a whole heck of a lot of money. I don't know. Um, billion dollars so that's a thousand million um yeah yeah there you go our, our chancellor has the perfect solution because you want a multiplier effect right you want to give it somewhere where it'll do some good so you give it to ucsd and then they find the scientists the funders the student activists the scholarships and you and you don't invent your own goddamn university because that's a waste of uh, energy and money you 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 use the forces that you already have 